really safe to say that there's going to be someone in there that has experienced abuse or is currently experiencing abuse, as well as the abusers themselves. We try and talk to them about, you know, how can we communicate with our friends when things aren't going well. Some of them may have witnessed domestic violence in their homes, in their personal lives. They may have been a victim, even at age 11 or 12. They've probably witnessed one of their friends or even themselves in an abusive relationship. Some relationships are never physically violent, but they still cause just as much harm as a physically violent relationship. They're being bombarded with messages about what it means to be a man or a woman in society. And with social media, it's, it's constant and it's not always positive. It's the first step to, you know, not progressing into a complete abusive relationship. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today we will learn more about dating violence from Katie Sanford. Katie is one of the educators at Laurel House. Laurel House is a nonprofit, comprehensive domestic violence agency in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. I love Laurel House. Katie's been in prevention education for three years and she has worked at Laurel House for two years. Katie received her undergraduate degree in sociology with a minor in gender studies from Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania and is currently attending Westchester University, also in Pennsylvania, to obtain her master's in public health with a concentration in community health. Katie's main responsibility at Laurel House is talking with the community, mainly students ranging from middle school to college, about domestic violence, to change behaviors and lessen the prevalence of domestic violence in the future. So Katie, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So let me start here. Your position at Laurel House has to do with speaking out on dating and domestic violence within the community, specifically though, with students ranging from middle school through college. Now, the students in middle school, what grades are they? So we usually start our programs in the seventh grade. So they're uh, about 11 or 12 when we first see them. Okay. And sometimes we'll see them at a younger age, but for the most part, we do start around that tween age when they start getting interest in dating or things like that. So you're there and you're with them. And when you walk in, I would imagine for a lot of them, they're looking at each other like, "What, what is she talking about? I mean... Is that possible? I mean, not that they don't understand what dating is, but I mean, the idea of dating violence or is this bullying? What are we talking about here? You know, what 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 do you think they have in their minds when you walk in that door? The nice thing uh, that we do when we see younger students is that we will focus mainly on a lighter conversation and we'll try and keep things about a healthy relationship instead of you're 11 or 12 years old. I'm not going to come in and uh, talk about dating or emotional abuse or things that they don't really understand or connect with. But they might connect to a friend who makes them feel bad about staying on the soccer team when 
they got accepted onto it and the friend didn't or a friend who had talked badly about them or something that relates to the children like sharing one of their TikToks and making fun of them and it's still talking about that unhealthy relationship aspect but not necessarily focusing on that dating piece. That sounds like a great way to get into that subject. It's just basically healthy behavior, unhealthy behavior, interaction, how to deal with adversity, even at that age, right? I mean, it sounds like that's what it is. It's like the politics of just being that age at that time. Because one of the things when I think back about being around that age was that at that time, your coping skills are, they're hardly there. I mean, Mm -hmm. you, you know, when someone's not nice to you, you almost go into a panic. You know, you kind of hit anxiety and panic and why are they doing this to me? And and you don't know whether the fight or flee and that type of thing. I guess you have to really, you kind of walk in on all of that. Right? Yeah, definitely. We try and talk to them about, you know, how can we communicate with our friends when things aren't going well? Because our friendship relationships are basically the same relationships we have with our romantic partners, just maybe not as intimate physically. So if we can teach them how to be a good friend, we're also teaching them how to be a good partner. Or if we can teach them how to have that healthy communication with their friends, they're going to take that into the other relationships in their lives. So we don't want to come in there and talk about dating and romance right away because that's when the kids toot out for the most part. Sometimes we do have those kids that are interested in romantic relationships at 11 or 12, but for the most part, they're still in that oh no, they have cooties. I'm not interested in that. Like, I don't want to date right now. That's very smart. I wonder when you're in there, like, okay, so you go do one of those classes. How long does that class go? Is that a half an hour? Is that an hour? What is that? Uh, It depends on what school. Sometimes we're in there for one 30 minute class. Sometimes we will set it up so that we're in there three times and we see those kids three times for those 30 minutes. So it all depends on what the school is looking for with us. Now, is that three times over the course of a school year? Is that what that is? It could be three times over the course of a school year where we're seeing different students, or it could be that we're seeing the same students three times. So we'll come in three days during the week of their healthy relationship lessons, and we're able to build on and expand on the conversation. So I have to ask the obvious question, which was how much does what you talk about change then when it's one thing to say you're in front of middle schoolers, but then you also go in front of high schoolers. So now you're really dialing it up, you know, dialing up the information and the heat. Um, You talk with middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. So talk a little bit about the three places you go, how much you switch to a different talk or PowerPoint or whatever you walk in with. Yeah, definitely. So even within the same age group, every conversation that we have is going to be different because the students are coming with different life experiences, different backgrounds. Some of them may have witnessed domestic violence in their homes, in their personal lives. They may have been a victim even at age 11 or 12. So every single conversation is going to be different. We try to let the students lead a lot of the dialogue and we just kind of steer it by asking you know questions and letting them tell us their experience and their thoughts and seeing kind of where they're at and seeing where we can change behaviors or input maybe some truth about domestic violence that they might have not known but um, the main thing is when we go in there to 
not terrify a middle schooler about what dating can be. So keeping it lighter. And then as they get older, you get into more of the truth about domestic violence. I'm not going to go into a middle school and give the statistics of domestic violence and that these relationships aren't always sunshine and rainbows and can sometimes be fatal. But a high schooler or even a college student can handle that. They understand more. They've had more life experience. They've probably witnessed one of their friends or even themselves in an abusive relationship by the time we talk to them at co- in college. So we can talk a little bit more candidly and get into that truth and the reality of what can happen if you are in an abusive relationship or your friend is. And then in college, sometimes the students will ask me questions that even I'm like, I don't know the answer to that. You are living this as well. And I'm trying my best, but I've never thought of it that way. So it's really awesome to see as they get older, how different their life experiences are and what they bring to the conversation. I would imagine if you have that answer, which is a, which is a, a really good and honest answer, which is I, I don't know the answer to that, then you probably say, I owe it to you to get back to you oh, with yeah. something. I would think. Definitely. Right? I I'm never going to try and... You mean you can't leave them hanging? Yeah, never going to try and make up an answer, especially when it's something so important. So I'll usually write down, if we're there for multiple class periods, I'll write down what class period it was and go back and get the exact answer from either a colleague or our funding coalition, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They have a whole stack of books and resources that can get the answers. Right. That's great. Yes. You have to do that. I'm curious when you were with, let's say high schoolers and then college students, I remember way back in 2005, 2006, after my daughter had been killed in talking with people from Laurel House and other domestic violence agencies and law enforcement people, some of the terminology that I had put in front of me, I had to stop. I mean, I was I was hit with terms like, which I'm used to now, but intimate partner violence, things like that. I'm curious when you're speaking, let's say with high schoolers and college students, what do you call it? I mean, do you call it domestic violence? Do you call it dating violence? Do you call it sexual abuse, sexual violence, intimate partner violence? What do you find yourself turning to for a term? For the most part, we will have a slide that we put up on the screen that's a big umbrella and it says domestic violence and a bunch of different interchangeable words that basically mean the same thing. So it's kind of just whatever flows off the tongue at whatever point in the presentation. But I do give them the opportunity to, you know, say which ones they've heard, if they have questions about specific phrases that we use, and just saying that, you know, not everybody is going to connect with the term intimate partner violence, but they might connect with dating abuse or domestic violence. So it really, it depends on, you know, the feel of the classroom, which phrase that we use. I would imagine too, you you spend a good amount of time talking about the difference between emotional abuse, emotional violence, physical violence, and also where they overlap. I would think you would, you've got to go down that street too, right? So we spend quite a bit of time talking about types of violence that we don't normally talk about. I know for me, when I was growing up, I was told that an abusive relationship is when a partner puts their hands on me. And that's where the conversation stopped. 
But I know now as I got older and I'm in this field that some relationships are never physically violent, but they're still just as abusive. They still cause just as much harm as a physically violent relationship. They're just using different tactics. So we want to give the chance to talk about different types of violence that maybe they didn't know about. So we talk about that verbal abuse, that mental abuse, economic abuse, any type of abuse that isn't looking at someone and seeing, oh, they have a black eye from their partner. Because that's mm-hmm. not what it always is. It's that. Right. And that's, that's the stereotypical thing any of us think of when we don't know as much as you know. And you're right. Ex- absolutely. You think that someone's beating somebody up one way or another. You know, they're hurting them physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll ask the students, what do you think of? What's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the term abuse? And they always go right to physical. And probably more than half of the students that answer say physical violence. And that's correct. But there's also other types of violence. And it's kind of like that light that clicks in their head, like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. I just, they weren't hitting me. Right. And at the same time, they're thinking, oh, I've seen that a lot in my life. I just didn't think of it that way. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious now, when you go out to change behaviors, tell us what that means. What behaviors are you really trying to change? Students now, young people, they're being bombarded with messages about the type of person that they should be, how they should act, what it means to be a man or a woman in society. And with social media, it's so much, it's constant. And it's not always positive traits that the media or Instagram are portraying as how you should act in your relationships or as a person. So when we talk with students, we're not only trying to educate them on the warning signs of what abuse is and the resources of where they can go to, but also to examine their lives to reflect on their relationships and ask themselves, do I exhibit these toxic behaviors? Does my partner, do my friends and my friends' partners? And so we want them to be able to recognize these behaviors and choose to stop it or choose to hold your friend accountable for not treating their partner the way they should be and calling out and saying, hey, you're not being really great to your partner. Why did you say that to them? And just recognizing these things as an issue and taking personal responsibility to call out their friends or their peers when they see these harmful things happening. I love that you do that. I really do. Because that's a tough time for anyone. If you're a guy and you're with your friends and you see your friend doing what you're talking about, being abusive with his girlfriend, let's call it in this case, it's hard to call that person out on that because now you don't want to risk your relationship with that guy or with that group. So that's a tricky time. I mean, that takes a brave person to really process all of that and then step up and then kind of call out that person and say, you know, that in effect, that behavior is just not cool. You know, you shouldn't be doing that type of stuff. You know, if you, if you really like that person, you don't do that. I'm glad you're speaking about that. You know, when you go and you speak in front of groups, because you know, that's a prevention step that could really help somebody for the rest of their life to be called out on that because they may be modeling behavior they've seen at home or they've seen somewhere else with their other friends. They're just kind of doing what I guess you do when you do that. They don't think it's so bad. 
and to have somebody tell them that it is so bad is, is really a terrific thing. It's a great step. I would imagine sometimes when you get in front of a group that somebody must come up to you afterwards and say, look, you know, I have a friend that's going through something right now. Sometimes you come to find out that the friend they're referring to is themselves. What would you tell that person to do? Now, let's say that person's 16 or 17 years old. Are you going to say to them, you should maybe call Laurel House or what would you tell them? Because you can't give them everything, every tool they need. How do you direct that person? When I walk into any classroom, it's fairly safe to say that there's going to be someone in there that has experienced abuse or is currently experiencing abuse, as well as, you know, the abusers themselves. If we're seeing the victims, we're also seeing the people who abuse. So trying to keep that in mind and really being sensitive to the subject when we talk about it and trying to be as trauma-informed as possible before they even come to us to disclose. So when we walk into these classrooms, our goal is to educate students and not to, you know, make them feel unsafe or bring up harmful memories, which is definitely a possibility when we have this conversation. Uh, So we always start the conversation with reminders to, you know, check in emotionally. If at any point they feel uncomfortable, they can just walk out. They don't have to tell us that they're uncomfortable. We don't need to have a discussion as to why but just to make sure that they are not putting themselves in a place to be upset or be uncomfortable. And then giving them those resources that they can go to if they do walk out in the middle of class or um, telling them to go sit at the counselors, tell them that we already told the counselors we're in here and they can go and sit there if they want to. If they're comfortable enough staying in the classroom, but just putting their head down and then always giving a little content warning of videos that we watch. I play the same video in most of my classes and it's a hard video to watch, especially if you've been in that type of relationship. So just giving them that content warning, allowing them to step away before it's even played if they think that they're going to be uncomfortable, not asking questions, not pressuring them to explain what's happening because sometimes they don't want to. We also use post-it notes or index cards for any anonymous questions, and sometimes students feel safe enough to disclose via post-it note, and if they tell us who they are in that post-it note, we do try and, you know, connect with them and ask them if they're safe, if they want resources, if they want help. We'll give them our safe dating for teens brochures that has our information so they don't even necessarily have to come up to us and tell us who they are and what's happening they have the information that they can call the hotline and they can stay anonymous because of covid last year freshman students didn't physically attend in person they also weren't there to attend any instruction about dating violence and what can happen what does happen a new crop of students will be entering college this fall Students who have not received much, if any, instruction about dating violence and sexual assault. So this year, more than half of all college students will be attending in person for the very first time. You can see the danger. You can see the need for education about dating violence. Think about When Dating Hurts, available on Amazon. I'm curious, in some of the talks you've given, has someone ever come to you before or after and admitted that they are the abuser? 
I haven't had someone come up to me like face to face and say that they think they have been abusive to their partners. But I did have someone write in one of the post-it notes that when we were talking about one of the activities that we do, she recognized some signs of the hurtful behaviors in herself and her relationship and that she is going to try and change her behavior. She was like, I didn't realize. So I'm assuming it was a she because of the handwriting. It was more stereotypically feminine. Um, They're like, I recognized, you know, the one person in the story, their behaviors, I kind of do the same things. And now I know that it's not okay. And I'm going to work on changing that, which I'm recognizing that you are an unhealthy partner or things like that. It's the first step to, you know, not progressing into a complete abusive relationship because everyone does unhealthy things sometimes. We're not perfect people. We can be jealous or we can say hurtful things to our partners and not even mean it. But when we're not doing it repeatedly or when we take action to truthfully apologize and change our behaviors. And that's what we're trying to do is get into them young and make them realize this isn't okay. And if you recognize this, there's ways that you can change. There's people you can talk to and, you know, don't do this to your partner. Yeah, that's great. I mean, those are breakthrough moments, you know, especially middle schoolers, because you're right. I mean, they may have techniques of how they deal with their friends and they don't, you know, they kind of get their way by doing certain things. And then to have somebody get up there and tell them that that what they're doing is is really harmful on the receiving end, that can be, that's a big step in coping and a big step in growing up. So that's great. I'm curious. Now, we've been talking about those instances when you are in front of students. Do you also get access to their parents at different times or is your concentration really on students at, at this time? We do sometimes do presentations geared towards parents, but majority of our work is for students, giving them those resources when they're young to not be a victim as they get older. But sometimes we do those parent presentations to talk about you know, what do the signs look like in my child? How can I prevent my child from being in this relationship? Or even, are you in an abusive relationship and you didn't even realize it? A lot of times, the parents that come to these things are not the parents that we need to get access to. They're the parents that, you know, are involved in their kids' lives. They want to know everything. They ask those questions. They have those conversations. But it's really kind of an issue of how do we get to those parents that wouldn't set aside their time or can't set aside their time. If we're thinking of maybe a single parent who works two jobs and doesn't have a free night to come and listen to us talk for an hour because they have to put dinner on the table after working a double. It's, you know, how do we get to them and how do we reach them? How do we let them know that we're here for them and their students? They want to be involved but they physically can't be. And one of my favorite ways that we've ever reached a parent is through the student. Uh, Like I said earlier, we give out student brochures of kind of the brief things that we talked about, types of unhealthy relationships and our information on them, our website, our hotline. And a parent had found it in their student's backpack or something. And they had called us and said, 
I read through this pamphlet that one of the educators have given to my student and think I'm in an abusive relationship. They were able to receive our services without ever having to come in contact with us because we talked to their child. Yeah, that's a great way in. It's interesting. You're right. I mean, how the power of a good brochure, a good piece of communication, you could give it to someone who's in eighth grade and a friend who doesn't get to the talk might see it, or like you say, a parent or another sibling could see it at home and they can do a lot of good. Just the fact that you have the information right there in one place and it's done in an interesting fashion and it's relatable. I have a curiosity here thinking about a lot of people that I've spoken with, mostly in this case, parents, but there are many, of course, who believe that domestic violence can happen to anyone anywhere. But others don't think that domestic violence, awareness and understanding and the red flags and all of that, they don't think it applies to them. It's as if it doesn't happen in their kind of neighborhood, doesn't happen where they live. They don't need to hear about it. What would you say to those people who just look at it like, I got enough things going on and and that's something that it just doesn't happen around here? Most people have kind of an image of what they believe domestic violence victim looks like or an abuser looks like. And they have kind of a profile of what that relationship looks like. For the most part, it is usually, oh, not in my neighborhood. That's a man hitting their wife and, you know, older couples. But the reality and the truth is that it's happening in every single community. It's happening in wealthy communities. It's happening in the poor communities. It's happening in heterosexual and homosexual relationships. There are women who are abusers. It's also happening in our children's lives. When we look at the statistics of who's most likely to be victimized, it's girls from ages 16 to 24. So we're thinking, oh, it's just, it's a teen relationship. It's not that serious. And or even, you know, it's not that bad. Your children, your kids, how how bad can it really be? And that's probably one of the most harmful things you can say, especially to your child, if they're coming to you saying that they're in this abusive relationship is to think it's not that bad. But they're going to carry these experiences with them for the rest of their lives. And we don't want to think that, oh, it's not happening in my community or in my life, or this happens to others. It doesn't happen to our type of people. Yes. You know, and if you have that kind of mindset, if a person has that kind of mindset, then things like understanding the warning signs, red flags, they're not going to study that because it doesn't apply to us anyway. So, so when the red flags and warning signs are around them, they don't know what they are and they blow it off anyway. You know, so, right. You have to hope that more and more people slow down a little bit and say, look, I believe what these people are saying on these podcasts. I believe what I'm hearing in the news. This is real. This can happen anywhere. I have to give it its, give it its proper amount of time. I have to pay attention. And I have to open my mind up to the fact that this could really touch my life. Even if it doesn't happen in my own little nuclear family, it could be happening to my niece or my nephew could be happening to somebody who's a friend of my daughter. So if somebody were in an ongoing abusive relationship and then spoke with you and you were the very first person to speak with that person, what would you want that person to do right away? So I think the most important thing, especially if this is the first time someone's 
sharing their story is right away to believe them. They are sharing this with you because they trust you and they want your advice. They want to know what to do. If you shut them down automatically, it's going to prevent them from reaching out in the future. If that person that they trusted to tell their story with, and usually people think their relationship that's abusive is this big, dark secret, and it's scary. So if they're telling you their deepest, darkest secrets, and you don't believe them, they're not going to reach out in the future because they trusted you. So the first thing you want to do is obviously thank them for sharing. I always tell them, you know, how brave they are. And it takes a lot of courage, especially to tell a stranger what's happening in your life. So telling them that you appreciate them sharing, telling them that it's not their fault and they they don't deserve to be in this relationship because most of the time their abusive partner is going to try and blame them. So they start to believe that it is their fault. So just letting them know that they did nothing wrong. This is not their fault. And then asking them what they would like us to do, not telling them what to do. Because when we look at these abusive relationships, they have little to no control in their lives. So we don't want to be someone adding onto that control and taking away their power again. So saying, what would you like to do? How would you like me to help you? And then giving them their options and letting them decide. So telling them, I can give you this hotline number and you can call later, or I can just sit and talk with you and we can, you can just kind of dump it all out on me. And if that's all you want to do, that's fine. Or asking them, do you want me to sit with you while you call the hotline just to kind of be there for some moral support? Uh, yeah, I love that idea. The, the sit with you when you make the call part, I always love that idea. Yes. Because yeah, sometimes all they really need is that encouragement and someone to sit with them, to hold their hand, to pat them on the back. And because it's a big step and a scary step to take to start telling people and just letting them do whatever they want to do. And sometimes it is to just get it out in the open and that's it, which is completely fine. Yeah. So you make a lot of good points and it takes some practice to be a good listener because if you're a close friend or if you're a parent of somebody who's opening up, you kind of want to turn into somebody who keeps pounding them with questions. Mm -hmm. And and then also once you start to hear answers to your questions, if you're interrogating, so to speak, that person, then you can't help but want to then become a judger. So now you start going from hearing things you don't want to hear. You don't want your child going through that. You don't want your friend going through that. You go into the judgment mode like, well, how could you let this happen? Or didn't you see this coming? These are all the traps that the friend or the bystander or the parent has to know about so you don't do that because you accidentally turn into practically the next abuser. You know, and that person now doesn't really want to speak with you about these things because mm -hmm. they, they know they're going to get a lecture out of it or something. And if anything, then wants to go back to the person who sort of started the whole thing with the abusive person could even go back and start complaining about you. Then that person knows to take the person that's being abused and to isolate that person more like, well, you know, you shouldn't talk to your mother or you shouldn't talk to your friend or whatever that is. So they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know me. Being a really great listener and 
And like you say, trying to hand back some of the control that other person's lost, say, what do you want to do? Do you want to call somewhere? Do you want to see somebody? These are all options. They're all yours. You decide. You kind of want to present that menu and let them pick and go from there, right? Yeah, definitely. And then, like you said, with the our friends or our family members who know us and know our relationships, also a lot of times will say, oh, well, your partner, they always seem so nice. They're always so courteous when they come over. This can't be what's happening. Like, are you sure it happened that way? And that's so harmful because we don't know what happens in that relationship. We we might know their abuser. We might know them as, you know, a phenomenal person because they have this mask that they put on when they're meeting other people. And they're only going to be showing their true colors to their partner behind closed doors. And they really want to keep up this image of being a great person. So having that thought process of, oh, well, they're always so kind and courteous when they come over. I don't know them to be that kind of person. It is truly a harmful thought to have or a harmful thing to say to your friend or your child. And I can see it happening. You know, it really would take some mm-hmm. some real discipline to, to stay on the right path. And, and again, like it's if you know your friend or if you know your coworker is going through this, and you really do care, you really have to call a timeout and get educated a little bit. You know, you have to go on the domestic violence site, or maybe you call a counselor and say, here's the situation. My friend's going through this. I want to be helpful. What kind of things can I do? Because you won't just know this off the top of your head. Most of us haven't had any experience in that area, whether you're a parent or a coworker or a friend, you don't have enough experience and you're going to work off your instincts and most of the time your instincts just don't work. I mean, you want to pull your friend out of that relationship. You want things to get fixed immediately. Very rarely would that ever happen. It's it's such a long shot. Is there anything you think I might have missed today or you feel that I should have asked you? I think mainly just some tips if your child comes to you as a victim of abuse, you know, what not to do. So you want to be someone that they feel they can come to. They don't want to be afraid that, you know, if they tell you that they've been dating someone, that they're going to get grounded because they aren't allowed to date, but they've been dating someone uh, maybe behind your back and it's not healthy. You don't want them to be afraid to come to you and talk to you and tell you these things because if they do come to you, it means they trust you and they want your help. And oftentimes the first instinct is, well, you're not allowed to see your partner. If that's how they treat you, I don't want you around them. I don't want them in my house, which can be harmful. That can the abusive partner even more angry. It could cause more consequences when they see them at school or outside of school. And I mean, when I was a kid, when my parents told me I wasn't allowed to do something, I just wanted to do the opposite. So just being there, asking them, how how you can help get educated read all of these articles and just educate yourself on types of abuse because it is it's more than just physical abuse and it's happening in so many different ways you might not even realize it so just having those conversations and being open to hearing what your child has to say to you and just giving them that option of what do they want to do and letting them know that you're always going to be here for them. 
I can see from talking with you that you know the subject so well, and you're such a, a you're such a bright light. You're so approachable, and I can see how you could go into schools at all levels, and people would embrace you and really be spellbound listening to you because it's all real. It's very real world. It's all very practical. It's very recognizable. It's not, and I haven't seen many people do this, but I have seen some who come in and it's, it sounds a little like it's coming out of a book somewhere. And you can see how people would tune out. In your case, it's completely the opposite. They would be so taken, I think, by your information and your style that they would say, I get this, you know, I get this and I, I want what she's talking about. So that's great. I really like to thank you for joining us on this When Dating Hurts episode. It's been an honor to get the opportunity to get to know you today. And I mean every word of that. You know, because of my daughter's tragedy, of course, I took dating violence as my cause. And for that reason, it was extra exciting to speak with you today because you've taken it as your cause. And, you know, I wish that I had met you a long time ago and, and knew then what I know now. Much of what we talked about will show up somewhere in my work going forward. I know I've picked up a few tips from you today that I didn't have before. Thank you so much for giving me your time and for giving our audience all these insights that are very practical and, and, and rooted in reality today. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk with you today. Yes, and you did it quite well. Thank you. Because of COVID last year, freshman students didn't physically attend in person. They also weren't there to attend any instruction about dating violence and what can happen, what does happen. A new crop of students will be entering college this fall. Students who have not received much, if any, instruction about dating violence and sexual assault. So this year, more than half of all college students will be attending in person for the very first time. You can see the danger. You can see the need for education about dating violence. Think about when dating hurts and ask someone you care about to listen to this podcast.